0: Happy New Year, everybody. Thank you for all of the support this year. Jimmy Fro put together a little highlights Highlights that he picked from this last year. We've never tried this before. Hope you like it. I pick them myself, but I simply cannot listen to my own voice. So, Jimmy has some highlights for you. It's been a good year. Stand-up science. It's been very successful. Learned so much. Figured out how to produce a show and it's been getting more and more consistent and been growing with each time that I bring it back to a city just had a successful run of head talks with Sophia Rockland. and went so well I was able to talk her into joining me for more legs of the tour next year and next year is going to be the year of collaboration for me I have a book I haven't even shared this with you guys I have a book coming out that I contributed to. I'm gonna have a little piece in each section as well as I helped some of the writing and punching it up uh, with my good friend Peter McGraw, all about business lessons that can be learned from the world of comedy. It's called Stick to Business, how cute is that? And I uh, I have another new show i can't say just yet but we're already working on the artwork and writing the description have another new kind of version of stand-up science that i'll be doing in addition so i'll be doing stand-up science full-time and then head talks here and there in select venues like a couple weeks in february three weeks in may three weeks in august and looking at trying to add some more weeks here and there definitely probably in december and then I have a new a kind of themed stand-up science show that I'll be sharing with you in, in the next few weeks, uh, hopefully. I just got to make sure everything happens uh, and is 100% confirmed. But it's in the works, and then I have some other projects a little more distant, but I imagine I'll be sharing with you maybe even by the end of January or February, so it's going to be a really exciting year. Thank you guys so much for the support. I'm also only doing four weeks of comedy clubs um, next year. That was my goal for 2020, and I already have those four weeks confirmed. I don't want to add any more. I just want to focus on doing lots more of these stand up science and head talks, and the new show that I'll be telling you about soon, as well as some other projects. So it's gonna be an exciting year. This is maybe the most optimistic, the most clearly I knew how my year was going to go. I'm almost already all the way booked out, and we're gonna be adding new things, new dates to the site all of the time. So again, you can always join my email list so you get alerted when I am going to bring something through your area. I will be going absolutely everywhere in the US in 2020 and then hopefully outside of it here and there as well. So stay tuned, but I am grateful for this show. I'm grateful to Jimmy Fro for putting these highlights together and always doing such a great job editing, and I'm grateful to you guys, the listeners, for helping me out, spreading the word, coming to shows, giving me positive feedback, and sending me guest suggestions, and all the other things that you guys have done to support the show on Patreon and everything else. So have a happy new year, everybody. I hope 2020 is as good for you guys as I believe it will be for myself. I'm very grateful and feeling very lucky at the moment. So have a great one and enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here.
1: Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're
0: supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we
2: are. It was thought that if an animal is larger or longer living, it should have an increased likelihood or more rates of cancer than, say, a smaller, shorter-lived uh, animal. So, say, an elephant compared to a mouse, right? So, if you're bigger, you have more cells. If you're living longer, you have more chances for uh, mutations to occur and, and replication and, and whatnot. But that's not the case. There there doesn't seem to be this correlation between the two. And so, the idea was, well, why why is that not happening? And so... I believe now there's two groups of scientists. Uh, The first one was at the University of Utah. Another one is at the University of Chicago. And they're trying to understand what's going on. And what they kind of found out was it's this gene uh, TP53. And TP53 uh, helps in lowering cancer because it induces cell apoptosis. So like a cell will commit suicide. So it seems that elephants uh, are more sensitive to DNA damage, so they'll have apoptosis or cell suicide right, more readily than we do. And that's because they have 20 copies of this gene, where we only have one copy of this gene. Hmm. And so now there's a lot of uh, interest in looking at this and what does this mean for future cancer treatment for humans and where the the role of cancer in humans in general. And so that was something that was really cool that we learned from elephants. No elephants were harmed in the in that study or anything like that. But, you know, it's, it's beneficial both for elephants and for humans. And, and that's pretty cool.
0: Hmm. Do they ever try to treat elephants with cancer, like in zoos or anything?
2: That's a good question. I'm going to say yes, though I don't know for sure. So I know there was a couple cases not too long ago. I think there was an elephant with foot cancer. And I don't know how, but... I'm going to go with yes only because usually that's always the case right if you know you're something's wrong with their animal then they're trying to right mm.
3: remedy it there's a cognitive psychiatrist, his name is Benny Shannon, and and in his opus um, Antipodes of the Mind, which is about the phenomenology of the ayahuasca experience he touches on these kind of archetypes or these sort of common symbols that people see as they experience ayahuasca so he went, and I don't remember what his survey group was, but they, you know, he was interviewing uh, many different people people who are completely ayahuasca naive and had their first experience to well-seasoned traditional healers Um, and what he basically found was that there was a certain frequency of categories that were coming up so it was very often that people would report seeing snakes or seeing uh, women dancing or seeing palaces or seeing praying mantises right these sort of I've entities. never seen the praying mantis the famous praying mantis uh, everything else <laughs> resonates with me yeah well that's like the DMT dude right I mean one of many right who knows yeah. or, or, the, or the octopi these are also some interesting characters seen those. I've
0: never seen the dribbling basketballs
3: oh what? Yeah, I'm just kidding. I haven't I seen know. them either. <laughs> Um Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, and in that book, there's actually a t- there's a there's a quote from a Jesuit missionary, and he it Shannon was kind of looking at like the the most early um, accounts of um, foreigners describing ayahuasca, and of course they said it was like the devil's brew and it was <laughs> very freaky stuff. And one of them had a bit more of a, a heart opening experience, and he, and he described the way ayahuasca works. and which could apply for psychedelics generally is like they offer visual solutions to personal riddles if that makes sense. So like you're visually seeing some sort of a repu- representation of a thing and it may not even have a name, right? And it's almost, it's it's ineffable actually, but it, it, it has a feeling. And of course with this like incredibly synesthetic experiences that we have with color and sound and taste all melding together, these these visual experiences we have are somehow representing like shapes in our mind and in our character and our body. And it's through the transformation and the morphing of these shapes that we can actually um, undo things in our uh, in our psyches, I guess. I mean, it sounds very abstract, but it kind of makes sense. You know, even with even with a simple meditation, you just imagine a pearl or (laughs) some water and you're kind of working with with that technology.
4: You know, we see different prices for the same thing, though, all over. And I think there's more and more acceptance of it. As we move forward so historically people might be upset in fact amazon there was a big backlash when they were changing their prices years ago the, but we see it now more and more like if you go to a baseball game while you're here in seattle the mariners use dynamic pricing so as they match supply and demand they're changing their tickets um, from day to day as their record gets better or worse as the weather's getting better or worse their opponents look better or worse so we're getting more and more used to dynamic pricing and different prices to different people
0: hmm. Yeah, I mean, I get dynamic pricing in terms of a, a baseball ticket and how well a team's doing and stuff. But I, I still, I, I think that people finding out that they're, you know, if, if you and I both go on the same widget dating app right now and sign up and one is $15 and one is $10, one of us is going to be upset.
4: Yeah, quite possibly. Uh, But you know, even grocery stores are are experimenting with this and considering this as they're getting more and more data as to how people are buying. So there's there's different ways personalized coupons. You've seen you know that annoying box that says enter a promo code, and you're like, ah, if only I had the promo code. Who's got the promo code? So there's there's ways that it's being done that without upsetting people as much. Uh, Ways that are not upsetting people to the point where they don't buy it anymore even though they they still value it
0: Hmm.
5: started reading about psychology became really interested in time perception and started reading about that and it just came from an intuitive understanding of wow sometimes the day seems to drag on and sometimes it seems to narrow this is everyday experience by an individual why does this happen and it got me thinking there isn't an external stimulus for all of our other sensory systems there's information coming in. Light, we have electromagnetic energy coming in, gets transduced into a neural signal that becomes vision. Sound is changes in mechanical pressure in the air. That gets transduced into a f- ke- neurochemical signal in the cochlea and gets sent to the auditory cortex. And then we're hearing Elliot Smith. Mm-hmm. We're hearing music. And somehow that change happens.
0: So there's a physicist. Way, way to bum everyone out with the <laughs> Elliot Smith reference, by the way
5: my students I've had a, a crop of students right now that are super into Elliot Smith that was in my head so hip I should have said
0: I'm, I'm <laughs> uh, just taking whatever jokes I get at this point so but I, I understand where you're going with this there's th- these physical sensory experiences are you know a little more intuitive how they're working than something like our perception of time so that's interesting I never put that together before, the difference between meaningfulness and, and happiness. As someone who now, as you say it, I I definitely have more meaning in my life than yeah. I have happiness. Well, there's a
3: lot of, you know, I study the meaning of work, so I'm not talking about my own research here. But there's a ton of work on that out there. Have you heard of the parenting paradox? Uh-uh. So when you're a parent, you tend to be oh, lower in happiness, happy, but yeah, more meaningful. More, right, right, right. And right, so it's right, these right, trade-offs right. that... Mm-hmm. What, that I'm interested in in the workplace as well because thing in the workplace we're always telling people find your calling do what you're passionate about and we we present that as if okay and then you have this perfectly happy path forever and it's just not that yeah. simple
0: oh no no, no not as you at probably all. know as a comedian I, yeah I mean <laughs> I followed my dreams I swear like you're told to follow your dreams by a bunch of people that have never actually followed their dreams or pursued them, have no idea what it's actually like to do that or to accomplish a dream. Because if you did, You know, like there's there's, like serious downsides to following your dream and even accomplishing your dreams.
3: Well, and the other thing that people don't realize is this is a really new phenomenon. Like if you look at human history, this idea of like find your dream, it's been around for a very short second. So this is this is a new thing we're doing.
0: I feel gifts sometimes put the pressure on the receiver as well when someone's clearly like put a lot of thought into it and then you're like oh yeah of course like a snake ladle like <laughs> and they're, they're like remember because you love snakes and like oh i had a snake when I was six, yeah, that's a thing. Absolutely. And uh, that was very thoughtful. It, but now they're like coming over to your house and you're like, you're pulling the snake ladle out of your storage box so that when, and you're just ladling soup around, like this is just <laughs> like every day every of your Like yeah. you do that every time. It's like
3: your every night ritual, yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. Oh, just get so much use out of this thing.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think
6: part of what makes gifts socially connecting is that reaction from the recipient, um,
2: is that sense in which you feel Like as a giver, you have impressed them or made them smile. And and so, as a recipient, you want to give that message whether or not you actually liked the gift in the first place.
7: Mm. As people get to know each other better, they start agreeing less about how desirable somebody is. In other words, what your mate value is is clearest when you first meet somebody. And as you get to know them better, your your mate value starts to become harder to harder to see becomes more obscured and people's reactions to you start becoming more and more idiosyncratic. Mm. So what this means then, and we've shown this uh, in a few studies, is that if I get people who know you quite well to evaluate how desirable is Shane as a romantic partner how desirable, you know, or even things like that seem very straightforward, like how attractive is Shane, you will see remarkably little agreement Hmm. on those sorts of judgments. So once people get to know you well, you are likely to have a network of, in your case, opposite sex, friends and acquaintances, some of whom are secretly pining for you, and some of whom like you as a friend, but that's pretty much it. It's that that variance grows over time, which we interpret that to mean that mate value starts to matter less as you get to know somebody over time.
6: Hmm.
1: If I had to speculate about the origins of personal control and its, its role as a fundamental human motivation, it promotes action in the service of, of goals, right? So if we didn't, let's let's think about the converse, right? Like we, let's say we believe that we have no control. The mm. world is random, outcomes just happen. I have no, um, no ability to influence whether those things happen or not. My sense is that what would happen to a lot of people is we would just hang out and not do anything. Because yeah. it wouldn't make a difference, right? If I, you know, if I sat on the couch, you know, who knows? Can end up being a professor, you know? Yeah, <laughs> because it's random, right? You know, because it might be. Even I'm just worse smart enough that. to be a professor, or yeah. dumb enough. I don't know which way that works, <laughs> but yeah,
0: uh, yeah. So because there's learned helplessness right. that is just incredibly right. debilitating for right. for people, and- right?
1: And so let's say that that is a thought that on base was on par with people who did believe that they had control. Eventually, I think the ones who didn't uh, believe that and the world was truly random. And I mean, there's some what we might call stochasticity or randomness to the world. But, you know, if you believe the world is truly random, and you're just like hanging out, not doing anything. Those people might not be as successful Mm-hmm. Um, they might have been naturally selected out. Who knows? They could be sexually selected out and mm-hmm. not been able well, to yeah, it's a bummer yeah but- yeah Yeah, right? well it's like well it's like well well, it's like well, to hang out here to um you know
0: no sort of no one's trying to hook up with the the of sort of this of pointless of this is pointless <laughs> right. and and, and right. meaningless. I found yeah. that out the hard way many times. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So maybe hanging out under uh, by the fire in the cave isn't such a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> for that, but
0: So I overbooked this tour that I'm on and I got a little burnt out. I felt like I was kind of cramming for finals or something. I never yeah. went to college, but what a and then I just collapsed.
3: Right. And then I right. started
0: watching a bunch of T V and like binge watching T V okay. makes me feel like absolutely miserable. That'll do it. And then I hate That'll myself for watching a right? bunch of TV. Right? And I have like all these shows I got a book, but now I can't do anything but watch TV and I'm beating myself up for. It. So that's my whole I know you didn't ask to be my therapist today, but I, I figured I'd at least I'd at least set you up let you know where uh, where I'm coming from I feel like a lot of times my podcasts and some of these ideas connect the most with people when I can make them a little personal and share some of my own uh, stuff with people so so that's uh that's just yeah. just we're just meeting each other now you know a little bit about me
3: well a lot of people have depression. The estimates are, you know, between maybe 16 and 25 percent, depending on when you're looking at the data, um, what age group you're looking at tends to be twice as common in women as men. But plenty of men have it, too. Mm. And it's actually the number one. uh, I feel like it's like like my feminine side. That's like
0: that's like a real. Yeah, like a feminist. You know, I get real depressed. Uh, Sorry, I cut you off to make a stupid joke.
3: So, right now, one of the things we're trying to figure out is what maintains bonds over time. So, we kind of think about this from a human perspective of when you're falling in love, that's pretty different from staying in love. So, what are the things that keep you with your partner? And one of them is when you're away from them for long enough, you have a desire to reunite with them. And so we kind of we call this partner-directed motivation. And this is something that we can measure in prairie voles because we can basically teach them to press a lever. And if they press that lever, they get rewarded by being able to go hang out with their partner. Um, And so we have this task where we basically ask them to press a lever, and then we change the rules a little bit. So we say, okay, now you have to press twice to get access. Now three times, four times. And we keep going till they give up. And when they give up, that gives us a quantitative metric of how hard they were willing to work to get access to their partner.
8: So, my first ventures into insect sleep started with this beautiful, large, yellow paper wasp that's located in Arizona, or at least that's where I studied it, Polistes flavus. And as I was studying, as a master's student, the sleep of this somewhat social paper wasp, I was reading this book by Kevin O'Neill called Solitary Wasps, and a quote that was inspiration for me to continue in this uh, laborious masters, most people, biologists included, would probably consider the study of wasps sleeping to be pretty uncompelling. So that was the harbinger for more sleep <laughs> research. <laughs> but let's go. Let's go back in time, and we can think about, for example, Pliny the Elder, seventy nine A.D. And in the back of his book on natural history in the world. The only place I could see find his mention of insects and sleep or insects and dreaming was insects do sleep, insects do breathe and sleep. But okay, all right, we'll run with that. Now fast forward, you know, a couple thousand years almost, and you've got Rao and Rao in 1916, and at the beginning of their paper called The Sleep of Insects, an ecological study, they wrote, An object in motion always attracts the attention of children, young and old. A butterfly flitting from blossom to blossom, a locust jumping before one in the dusty road, a bee rummaging in a flower all arouse one's interest. But naturalists, like children, cease to pay attention to insects when the latter cease their activity. Thus, the interesting problem of when, where, and how insects sleep has been all but neglected. Hmm. Now, I might have read that same quote months ago when we met last time but
0: it's worth repeating. It's uh, I don't think that you did. I think oh, I would have I would have remembered that. Great. That that's an impactful quote and it does it, you know, it makes me feel like a fool. <laughs> here here I've been. Just uh, just tantalized by these like birds flying about and uh, like a child. Oh, things moving. I'm going to look at the moving thing completely ignoring the static Cecil. We have all been missing out on such a large portion of life. That's right. So you're in Wisconsin, so how do you get rid of winter so that people, (gasps) (laughs) I mean, what do you, because I was thinking during, for, as I was like thinking of a New Year's resolution, I was like, well, because I I go in and out of jogging and getting cardio Mm -hmm. stuff and I always feel at my best when I'm getting regular cardio. And so I was like, that would be a good New Year's resolution to do cardio three times a week. And reasonable it's not that crazy of a of a goal and i just was looking outside and i was like there's no way i'm gonna start <laughs> this behavior in wisconsin in the freezing cold and my excuse machine got a really yeah a really good workout yeah
9: <laughs> we have a built-in good machine mechanism that does that yeah well, i
0: how do you get people started uh, in a time in a time like this <laughs> right? in, in january the- if I ask
10: you to think deeply about what my exact rank is when you say you're in the top 10, that's actually not good. You're probably going to end up with nine or eight or some, some estimate like that, which is fairly low in the list. And that actually hurts your evaluation. So, so I totally agree that a lot of times marketers are better off when consumers engage in kind of this heuristic level of processing rather than going into a second deeper layer.
0: Plus say there's a top ten comics to watch or whatever, a lot of times they aren't listed in order. It's just like here's yeah, ten of the best comics, and then that's all you need to know. And that's actually really interesting. So I have
10: a working paper now that's looking at exactly this idea. So so far we've been talking about ranked lists where there is, you know, some order where people are ranked, but a lot of lists, there's no ranking. You're just part of a group or a category of like the top ten comics. And Uh, What we find, though, is even in those cases, people infer ordinality, which means they kind of, even though there's no rank given, we're so used to seeing lists that are ordered 1 to 10 that just the position you show Mm. up on the page, they assume something about your Mm. um, evaluation or how good you are just from that. Because we're so used to seeing lists in this ranked way, Mm. we extrapolate that out and assume ordinality even when the list is unranked
6: the impact of digital media on learning. We do a lot of research on testing what toddlers and preschoolers learn from different sources of information. And so we do lots of experiments comparing, for example, whether toddlers learn better from a real life demonstration or a demonstration on video or an interactive video versus a non-interactive video or ebook or print book. So we do lots of studies like that, little lab experiments. The other arm of our research is looking at the impact of digital media on development. And mostly how we've done that so far is looking at, we tend to do these controlled laboratory experiments in my lab. Um, so we look at how children play, for example, when there's a TV on or not in the room. So we have this living room kind of lab space and we have preschoolers come in for instance for half an hour and we have the tv on with a kids show for 10 minutes and a grown-up show for 10 minutes and no tv for 10 minutes and we look at changes and we're now we're doing a new study now where we have them wearing wristbands kind of like a fitbit kind of thing to track heart rate and other physiological markers mm, um, so while they're playing I, I love it it's a great data set to play with and so we're interested in how children play and interact with their parents for example when there's tv or no tv
7: So we all tend to think of ourselves as being completely fair-minded, not having prejudicial biases in our mind. But due to the exposures we see in the media or our own life experiences, we form these associations, and most of them are absolutely benign. Uh, We might uh, associate a color with a positive feeling, perhaps because of a sports team we cheered for or something like that. And so being that I'm from Minnesota, the color purple probably has more positive vibe for me than it would for most. But in any case, the, uh, the main takeaway of this is that when you apply it to biases, you can start to see associations that people might not be aware they have or don't want to admit they have.
9: But I think this kind of relates to what we we're talking about at the very beginning, which is that, and again, about your question about what's different about being a historian now than maybe 40 years ago or 50 years ago or 100 years ago, is that the tools that we have to do research, some of which are science tools allow us to answer some questions that we weren't really able to do 50 years ago. For example, like ancestry.com. I mean that you and I are carrying around inside us DNA code that tells us which is why we can get an ancestry.com thing, and it'll read it for us and it'll say, you know you're x percent this or that or the other thing, but that carries certain kind of things within us that tell us about our past. hundred years ago, no historian, the, the most eminent historian in the world, that historian didn't have that tool. That now anybody that spits into a test tube can have, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. about their own past or about anybody's past, so that we can trace things like the migration of people and you know the kind of thing. Not only do we, you know, share DNA with earthworms, but we share assumptions such with Neanderthals, uh, you know, so we know that Neanderthals and Homo sapiens then had sex in the past, um, uh, you know, so that there's. There's that kind of until tool they did. didn't and until then they it was didn't war yeah and then <laughs> they just Homo you know, sapiens just wiped them out um <laughs> or they just died uh, h- evolutionary pressure whatever you want to call it um it's right. killing them so there's there's you know that's I mean that sounds like kind of an exotic tool but for mm-hmm. example um, some some scientists some microbiologists and and other people his, who do historic microbiology have have determined definitively that the disease that killed a lot of people in the 14th century really was a bacillus called ursinia pestis. There was a debate about was it really, which is the Black Death, okay? So what was the Black Death, like epidemiologically, all right? So people said, well, maybe it was the Black De- maybe it was ursinia pestis, maybe it was something else, maybe it was this or that. So people dug up plague cemeteries in London and looked inside the teeth of people who were buried in these 14th century cemeteries, that we know they all died of the plague um, and. Inside their tooth pulp, they found the *Arsinia pestis*. In other words, they found the bacillus that killed them inside their teeth, which is where it happens to, or it lodges there. Okay, this is definitive. I mean, this is a—it's not a, a way, but maybe it's one thing or another. I mean, a lot of things about the past we can't tell. I mean, we will never be able to answer those kind of certain kind of questions. But we know for sure now because it's still there in there, you know, in the biological evidence in the epidemics of this disease.
0: I could talk about these edgier topics in a way that, with like my ah shucks Midwestern delivery, that allowed me to get away with with things, and and then I just got bored with like trying to push the boundaries of like, okay, can I make this abortion joke work, or whatever, <laughs> whatever social taboo, whatever graphic sex thing. Like, it started getting boring to me to just like be as outrageous as possible or whatever and I wanted to be talking about like really how life worked and what was more meaningful and to me there was nothing more edgy or or challenging or kind of dangerous than like actually figuring out these underlying properties that drive people's behavior and and trying to communicate things like science which I've got really into on stage when people like don't necessarily they're not coming there to learn mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. like it is it's it's a much more nerve-wracking experience trying to talk about say biology in a mm. club where people like worked hard all week <laughs> and want to like get drunk and have some laughs about dicks and <laughs> don't want to hear but of course there's plenty of bio, biology dick jokes so you can make it work but uh, but I kind of like it was drawn to science through my like natural sense of re- rebellion um, as well. So so look at us, a couple of badasses <laughs> <laughs> recording this badass podcast. So I, I my wife do- will be so impressed. by this. <laughs> We but for the listeners, we are both like wearing leather jackets right now <laughs> with like spikes and stuff all over. Persistence hunting—that's oh, that's yeah. something that I just found out about recently. Yeah, and it—it uh, it blew my mind that this is it's this a is a big part of our our ancestors' past. Yeah, can, can you explain? Persistence? Yeah, so
11: for people who don't know, there are um, a number of cultures that we have, you know, historical records of. Um, not too many to do it anymore, but uh, that that uh, hunting and gathering groups that would hunt by running down, you know, an antelope. Uh, in the heat of the day, you know, typically it's sort of in a dry savanna environment, grassland. This idea that, 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 that hunting that we're seeing, you know, those butchered bones of two and a half million years. Well, how do, how do we kill the zebra? And you know, his take is that, well, we ran it death We ran it to death, you know, in the, under the heat of the African sun kind of thing.
0: Yeah. Cause we can sweat and cool ourselves yeah, down. And, that's right. And we're these
11: gross naked things. And, uh, <laughs> we sweat more than
0: any other animal
11: on the planet. And that's, you know, so the idea is that that adaptation goes all the way back there. I'll say this about that, which is that, you know, humans absolutely can persistence hunt. And I'm sure that that's been really important in a lot of places over the globe in the last two million years. But other groups don't persistence hunt. Mm-hmm. So the group I work with, the Hadza in northern Tanzania, they walk a lot. They rack up like, you know, guys will go 10 miles a day. Women will go six miles a day. Um and it's like hilly rocky terrain it actually would be pretty hard to to run on um and so they are endurance you know they they are endurance athletes these guys but they never run so i'm not convinced that running has to be like the thing you do but it is absolutely true that that endurance you know activity is the thing is the thing that humans do apes are lazy right all of our, our ape relatives are like lame Hmm. Right, I mean they're cool, but they're they're lame uh, as as athletes. They climb really well, and they're really powerful. Um, they're like ten times stronger than us. They'll rip your arms off and rip your testicles off and that kind of thing. Um, they go for the testicles. They go for first. every time. Test- Cover up. You're gonna die <laughs> anyhow if you ever get in a fight with a J8. But um, but you'll die with your testicles on. Yeah. So I think. If you had to go, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> um, Rip
0: my head off clean first. Right. Ape, yeah. And then do whatever
11: you will. Yeah. With the testicles.
0: <laughs> you say in the surveys that you also would ask people if they're atheists or agnostic. So why why are they
12: falling on a list? Yeah. I mean, really, to be an atheist, it's the absence of a religion. And, right. and I really love the quote from Ricky Gervais where he says, it's common for people to say that atheism is a religion or to call it a worldview a a belief system and he says this this is absurd it's just the absence of one particular belief it there's nothing else that attaches to it there's it is no belief system it is no worldview and so he says um, in his quote if you want to call atheism a religion that's like calling not skiing a hobby it's it's just you 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 lack a a particular kind of belief um Mm. but Mo- uh, um, historically in the United States, relatively few people would claim the identity as, as an atheist. So if you if you uh, ask and survey s- straight up and you give them those choices of different categories to put themselves in, right now it's up to something like 3% will call themselves atheist. So they don't like that label atheist because for a lot of people, when they think atheist, that means militant atheist. That means, you know, I'm uh, cooking babies and eating them. That means I have no moral code. And, and people just... They, they recoil from the term. But meanwhile, you can ask the question another way, and you can say, do you believe in God? Yes, no. Well, if you ask it that way, your nose might get up to, say, 10 or 15%. Mm-hmm. And you would think that a person who says, I don't believe in God, is an atheist. That's what the term means. But more people will say, I don't believe in God, than will say, I'm an atheist.
0: Next week on the Here We Are podcast, going behind the scenes at Fort Worth Zoo. Did uh, four of these episodes and kind of spreading them out a little bit, trying to maybe do them every other week just so it's not one month straight of uh, of zoo episodes. It's kind of what I'm thinking. I think that's a good strategy. And what did you guys think of the highlights? Was it enjoyable? Was it worth doing again uh, next year? Or maybe putting together other compilation episodes in the future maybe I'd listen back and reflect on what I think about them now who knows there's a lot a lot of directions we can take this show so i'm always looking for feedback it's it does i really do pay attention to when you guys write and say what you like and don't like and have suggestions for other directions we could take and guest suggestions i take those seriously and you know it's really the only The only feedback that I get. Otherwise, I'm just recording these by myself and just putting them out there. So I do appreciate all of the feedback, and it's always welcome. You can always go to the hereweare.com website and find contact info there. And um, outside of that, uh, you know, I want to thank my partners, Libro.fm. Great way of getting an audiobook and still supporting your indie bookstores if you put on the offer code here we are you get three months for the price of one um outside of that quick plug for lucid mood my favorite weed that there is don't like cannabis but i do like lucid mood it's a designer experience I just picked some up the other day, and the reason why I'm plugging them is because, my goodness, I wish they were in every single state. They're only in a few states right now, but if they're in every state, I would have this predictable experience that I like whenever I want to sit down and have a creative high take on my writing or whatever. I love the option of doing that, but I find regular cannabis to be Way too unpredictable for me. So I usually don't mess with it. So Lucid Mood, check them out. Special thanks to Jimmy Fro. Special thanks to Ramin Naser for always making me such fantastic art and working on the Here We Are podcast website. And also grateful to Mike Kaplan and Zach Sherwin for the best podcast theme song in the business. Enjoy the new year, everybody. A
7: podcast
4: a podcast network.